It shows some of the depth and color of the motorcyclists' lives. It shows their skill, determination, and courage. It does some work to quash the idea that anyone on a bike is a drug-crazed loon or a blood-soaked rapist on the rampage, but it also preserves the essential outsider notion of the biker, the idea that this is their thing and it's not for everyone. It says dirtbags in the title, we can do what we want. This is the Enlightened Dirtbags Podcast. My name is Jonah Condro. And I'm version two. In the first season of our podcast, we'll be discussing seven books about motorcycles. We're glad you're here. Let's turn some pages. This is good. I like that as a start to uh, our podcast on a short, short history of the motorcycle. Mm-hmm. We kept getting this wrong before we started recording. Short history of the motorcycle by Richard Hammond. I just need to keep remembering that he is short. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a short man's history of the motorcycle. <laughs> I think that our author, I think Hammond, Richard Hammond, would appreciate that joke that we're making. Because this book is full of like weird British humor. I almost feel like he did it that way. Because brief would be much more in his vocabulary. Oh, I, okay. You know? I see. I see. He's so. What you're saying is, Hammond was aware. Mm-hmm. He's he's aware of his stature in the world. Well, that did, he's a short man. Did you watch any of the like Grand Tour, um, Top Gear shows? Very little. They're very little stuff. Always on him about being short, <laughs> and also always on him about being a motorcycle enthusiast. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because they're cagers through and through. Right? right. So we're talking about Jeremy Clarkson and James May. James May, and then it was also Richard Hammond, right? Yeah. This is where they built their name, right? Yeah, that's an iconic trio. To the point that um, after like out of like fifteen seasons or something of Top Gear, they had like a big company get together, and Jeremy Clarkson punched a producer in the face, <laughs> and uh, they fired him, and they tried to keep the other two guys, and the other two guys said, uh, "No, we're not doing it without Jeremy." And then they went and started the Grand Tour, okay. which is like so much of it is structured like hilariously around the way that they did Top Gear to like poke fun at good luck with your show. This uh, is okay. like, we're going to do it this way because it's our show. This is how I know of Richard Hammond. I don't know him as an author, right? Top Gear, Grand Tour. This is where I know Richard Hammond from, right? I don't know him as an author. So when we were putting together the first season of this podcast and we're lining up the books and we're going through some titles and we're saying yes to some and no to some, I think this is like a very good start. First of all, He's doing something, he's taking like a big, a big thing, right? Like the history of the motorcycle and he's condensing it. We can get into uh, if he did it a successful job or not, but I just think that for us and for our first season of the podcast, I think this is like a very good stepping stone. This is a very good first gear, right? I agree. Into, into the topic of motorcycles. What I knew about Richard Hammond, I'm not very familiar with Top Gear or the Grand Tour, even though... Uh, I've seen a lot of those clips. I've watched a lot of those episodes. I haven't seen every single one, but I did know that Hammond was a motorcycle guy, right? So I went, oh, okay, this makes sense to read this guy ahead of all these other books, right? If there's anyone listening to this season that might not necessarily be a motorcycle fan, it kind of gives them a 
a good foundation. You know, it explains the history and kind of what a motorcyclist connection is with the bike and why we have a passion for it. And he does it like in the first few pages, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think for us, because we've both ridden motorcycles, you still have motorcycles. Yep. I'm kind of the outsider here now. In the, Yeah, I'm, it's weird. I was like, am I an outsider now or am I an insider because I don't have a motorcycle? I'm just trying to think of that in relation you're to an like outsider to the outsiders. Yeah, I guess. interesting. But you're definitely not an insider. Sorry, sorry to anyone that's listening. I'm <laughs> currently not riding. That distinction is made early on. That's helpful for how he sort of sets up the book and then like decides where to take this, right? Because it makes sense. Like if you're writing a book and it's history, you're thinking, okay, when was the first motorcycle? When was the last motorcycle? Right. Those are important dates. What, what was it like? Nineteen oh two? That this like the first motorcycle came, and he even wasn't sure in the book. No, it was eighteen something. Nineteen oh two was the start of the racing on the Isle of Man. So I'm already getting all that stuff wrong. Yeah, I believe it was uh, the eighteen thirties was when they first adapted a motor to the bicycle when they came out with the safety bike. Because that's what Hammond was saying. They were kind of like doing two things at once. Like the bicycle was being invented, right? And they had like those w- weird penny farthings with like those big, huge front tires, right? So th- they. Yeah, because they hadn't designed gearing yet. Yeah. So, and like, in, and even like this book has quite a few images in it, right? Lots of photography that I like. And in some of those very old motorcycles, you see like this really huge sprocket on the back tire. That was the only way they could get them to move. They yeah. didn't have gears. It's it's interesting to think about those things that we just assume as one whole part of a, a machine now. You know, brakes, gearing, all of that. But it didn't come together at once. You know, it's not like the idea we have of the motorcycle now. It's not like somebody invented it and they're like, here is the motorcycle. You know, it was like there was a bicycle. And then someone was like, let's try to mount a steam engine to this, <laughs> which is insanity. It's so dangerous. Um, I believe it even killed one of the early inventors and you know, they didn't even have brakes on them and a lot like wooden frames and stuff like, so it's, it's interesting to see how each piece of engineering adapted as everyone kind of got their hands in it. Well, and this is something that I didn't know because like I'm a mechanic by trade, rode motorcycles for a long time, right? Kind of have a pretty solid idea how engines work, right? Right. But some of these engines, they were like oil loss and I, uh, Hammond was talking about this when the Americans, when the Americans kind of took motorcycling and they started racing. The board track racing. The, they were doing the board track racing, right? And these these engines were like designed to lose oil as they race. And I was reading this. I'm like, this is absolutely insane. Yeah, total loss oiling system. Yeah, like these engines are made to lose oil as you're running them because that's completely ins- insanity now because you just like it just falls into the bottom and then it gets picked up again and then it falls yeah. into the bottom. And then like after a while you change the oil, right? Like when it's not running. The fact that these guys are racing on a wooden oval, right? And then like, of course, Hammond's like, well, this is like a complete disaster because the nails would pop out, it'd get slippery and these things would sometimes burn down. <laughs> yeah, or the amount of times that somebody would slip on the other motorcyclists leaked oil and just go into the crowd yeah, it's and like- kill a handful of people. <laughs> like there's, there's a, definitely a, an understandable reason why board track racing lasted like five years very <laughs> exciting five years but i think like one of the main tracks burned down understandably you know you're just crashing bikes full of fuel onto oily planks and then i think another one got turned into a military hospital at one point but it was only like five or six years that the whole thing lasted and this is like sort of like a, a crazy side fact right that you would like talk about if you're like having a pint or something like 
16 tons of nails went into like the one like oval <laughs> like yeah that's just insane like somebody had to pound all those in right i wish i could remember he mentioned the the feet the like the length of the planks that went into there because they didn't mount them like they were two by fours but they didn't mount them the four inches wide that was the depth of the track right so they mounted the planks the two inches wide so it's a wide track you know you're building this wide track at two inches at a time but four inches of thickness to the track right and of course this is all because they hadn't figured out how to do fucking asphalt on a slant yet that's the only reason someone came up with this because it was just another piece of of engineering that we take for granted now you yeah. know you wouldn't think about it all a banked turn well they they're all over the place but then it was so difficult to do and so they made wooden racetracks. <laughs> Wild, man. Like 100 miles an hour, these guys are going. Pouring oil everywhere. It's like Mario Kart. It's insanity. In the early pages of Hammond's book, and I like this, I picked up on this a couple of times, He's, he, he uses the phrase, attitude of mind, mm -hmm. right? Because, version two, you raise a good point that we take a lot of this for granted. Could you imagine, like, back in the day, the 1800s are over. It's like the 1900s. You haven't even had the First World War yet. So you haven't even really been exposed to like the great big boom in like uh, vehicle technology, right? With like the, the military vehicles, right? And tanks and things like that. So we're talking like it's 1900s, right? You're, you've got bicycles. Some of them have like these crazy steam powered engines, right? Some of them, okay, they're starting to figure out gasoline powered stuff. And then like you would have never seen that. And then all of a sudden, Maybe you see somebody, you're just cruised, walking around London and some guy rides by on a motorcycle. Like that would have blew your fucking mind. Yeah. You know what I mean? But he might not have passed you. Like, <laughs> these are half horsepower motors. That's you true. Know? You, Single you, yeah. cylinder, half horsepower yeah. motors. Uh, it wouldn't have been quick, but just the idea of non-self-propelled transportation that sure. wasn't a horse. For sure. You know, that's pretty bonkers. Like, and the idea of just using petrol as fuel like you're not maintaining and caring for a horse like the whole idea of it you know like you said you've been walking or riding horses the whole time and all of a sudden someone effortlessly just glides down the cobblestone well i don't know if you can glide on cobblestone <laughs> <laughs> yeah possibly not now, especially the early bikes had uh, wooden wheels with brass tires i guess you would call them but there was literally just a brass lip all the way around the wooden circle yeah so just metal on cobblestone it would have sounded awful and wouldn't have been comfortable you know you know no suspension they showed um in the book one of the very first motorcycles i believe it was the first one that uh gottlieb daimler uh fitted with an internal combustion engine and it's like it looks like a kid's rocking horse Right. Like it has yeah. like a horse saddle draped over it, and it's just a two by four framed <laughs> machine with a single cylinder, like half horsepower. It would have been bizarre, even more so than they are now, you know? Like it would have just been like, what is this? So I like that because picking up this book and reading about it, I really got a sense of Hammond's enthusiasm, right? And I think that's something, and we can, like, we'll get into some of the later chapters and why we may or may not have like resonated with some of those things that he was saying and just some of the content he was covering. But I think his enthusiasm, it carries out throughout the book, which I like because I don't think that Hammond's enthusiasm really peters out. I think, I think he's excited. Like every time 
you start a new chapter and the short chapters it's a short read it's like what a couple hundred pages but there's like tons of photos in this one right yeah for sure there's probably equal parts photos to text and i think that that's something that even though i might not be enthusiastic the same way hammond is on a lot of these in a lot of the chapters but he definitely carries that all the way through well one thing that i really liked that he did was he it, it was almost like foreshadowing like he would regularly reference newer bikes even through the history so it doesn't feel so much like a like he's a history professor you know it's not so much that the fascination is the history of it it's it's the fascination is motorcycles yeah because it's not like okay in 1983 they suspended triumph uh production and then in 1991 it started back up again and then in 1993 yeah yeah you're right you're absolutely right he does kind of give you a peek right yeah it feels a lot like a pub conversation yeah which is i i really appreciate it and he even references pub conversations a bunch of times yeah for sure one thing that um that I was thinking about early on, like especially when he's talking about when they first started fitting uh, steam engines to these bikes, like it really shines a light on like what this crazy gift is that humanity has. Because nowadays, when you think about it, every new invention that comes out, it has to be immediately practical. You know, if it like nobody comes up with something that's like, that's a cool idea, but it's not practical, but we'll see where it goes. If you did that now, like with a new phone, you know, we're going to try something wild that's not immediately practical. Nobody cares. They're like that. We're not interested. But these early motorcycles, like these steam engine bikes early on, likely weren't faster than the bicycles, like the man powered bicycles. And they you couldn't carry luggage on them. There's no suspension. The steam engines were hugely unreliable and dangerous. Yeah. And they didn't have great braking systems for them or <laughs> some of them not even braking systems at all. So you've created this thing kind of co-created, right? Because I can't remember who it was they, that created the safety bicycle, which the sense of that was, OK, we're done with these ridiculous bicycles that have the huge front wheel and this tiny back wheel. We're going to now create a bicycle that has equal sized front and back wheels. And then Gottlieb Daimler was like, Oh, I could put a motor in that. Like, and he was he was entirely unrelated, right? He was not from the two-wheeled world at all. He's the inventor of the compact high-speed combustion engine. He's the founder of Daimler AG, which is the world's oldest automotive manufacturer. He was a car manufacturer through and through, but it was just he saw something and went, Oh, I could put a motor in that. And that's what he did. But originally they're you know, grossly impractical, but people were fascinated. And it was kind of this cool thing to see, like, humanity was able to look at something that had a future that was pretty much useless to them right now, but they could look at it and go, these inventive people could go, oh, there's something here. We can make this into something down the road, even though right now it doesn't do us any good, but there's a future here. And it's this ability to look forward that I don't think you know, most creatures of the planet have. Hammond, he talks about in the early pages, I don't have a page number here, but he, he kind of talks about how motorcycles have sort of like exploded into existence. Because I think you're right. All of a sudden, one guy's got the idea. Daimler's like, yeah, let's put an engine in that. Okay, mm -hmm. we got to figure something out. And then like every year, right, you see like these major overhauls to what a motorcycle is, right? And then... And then as you get into the later chapters, you know, you got Hammond talking about the superbikes and you're like, oh, of course. Yeah. But of course we ended up here. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like, okay, steam engine, that's too slow. Okay. Let's get some gas in here. 
What happens if we put another cylinder beside it? What happens if we put the cylinders like this, right? And so th that's something too that Hammond sort of touches on throughout the book when he's talking about like what different manufacturers were doing, right? Because I think, I, I got it here somewhere, but I think it was like Kawasaki like didn't make a four stroke until like the 70s. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So like even something like that just seems just seems bizarre, right? That like, no, no, we're only going to do two strokes and we're going to see where that goes, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the oh man, there was another crazy thing. I believe it's the Honda. Oh, uh, I'll I'll find on my pages here. But they uh, to get away with like uh, they were doing this certain race, and they they couldn't have a four cylinder. They couldn't have like a four cylinder or something. So they're like, okay, well, how do we kick up displacement? They're like, we're gonna do like an oval straight piston, like not like pistons are circles, right? Yeah. They're just gonna like, no, no, we're gonna make that an oval. Like as a mechanic, I'm like. Okay, clearly that doesn't work, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you know, but they were just doing weird things and they were just seeing what worked, right? Well, and that was the beautiful thing about racing and production back then is like racing was a chance to prove what you were doing in these new inventions. Like, and not necessarily like nowadays it's, it still happens, but back then it was like to prove not only the technology, but to prove motorcycles, right? Like it was this cool breakout technology that people were like, okay, but cars though. And then you could go to these races and people are trying, like you said, oval pistons or whatever wild new things they're doing to kind of showcase this in the race world. Yeah. So it was Honda. They, I, I can't remember the engine, but Hammond gets into it. Uh, it's like in the middle of the book, it was Honda that did the oval pistons and it was actually Yamaha that they didn't have a four stroke till 1970. It just like goes to show that they're just like, okay, yeah, we're going to try this thing. And, we're going to see where it goes, right? There's actually another great book if you want to uh, talk about just the ingenuity in the Japanese motorcycle world uh, called Motorcycle Wars. And uh, it's just all about like how the big four of the Japanese motorcycle world came to be. Because there was like 200 motorcycle companies originally. Really, really small. Lots of them copying like American and British bikes, and then how the big four came to be. Great book. I don't remember the author, but <laughs> just kind of a, kind of a great way to dive into specifically Japanese motorcycles if that's your thing. One of the things I was thinking about though is around the time of the safety bicycle. Like like we said, it was it was a small window of time, like four years from the safety bicycle to the steam engine bikes to the uh, internal combustion bikes. And they are kind of progressing very rapidly. The invention of gearing, uh, you know, the invention of brakes, which is hilarious that it came afterwards, you know, how to move it and then wait, how do we stop it? But it makes me wonder if you were to take a modern motorcycle back in time, would they look at it and go, oh, well, of course, you know, like that's where we see this going. Like, was there that much foresight? Did they kind of foresee where it was going to get to? And was it a matter of we don't know how to engineer it yet? Or were they just throwing stuff at it? And be like, let's see how this ends up or where it goes, you know? It'd be interesting to see what their reaction would be to that. It's unfortunate because British motorcycles, they kind of just self-plateaued, let's say. That's, that's not something that Hammond said. That's something that I'm saying. But Hammond talks about how, like, the Japanese bikes, right? The uh, the non-European bikes, they were just getting bigger, badder, and faster. And then, like, the British bikes, they were the king of the road for, like, years, right? They were winning all the uh, the Isle of Man, the TT, the, was it, the Tourist Trophy yeah. races, right? And then all of a sudden, they were just like, okay, no, we got that figured out. And then they kind of stopped, right? Because, I mean, like, they didn't really improve upon their bikes. And then 
Japanese bikes that were just like, okay, well, now we're 50 cc's bigger. Now we're 100, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, people were buying the bikes that were winning the races. So I think part of it is like cultural. It must be like, okay, we got... We, we, we got, and we're, and we're happy with what we got here. We don't need anything bigger and badder because in a way your own thinking sort of like stifles you from thinking about becoming bigger and badder. Right. And all of a sudden when you got like a Kawasaki or a Yamaha or a Honda that's showing up or a Suzuki that's showing up to, that's never been at a race before and it's running a race and you're like, oh, oh no, like we've got work to do. You could almost say we're seeing that happen with Harley Davidson right now, though. You know, they kind of built that name and plateaued and then never really went anywhere. Yeah, they're like the the high school kid that played football and peaked too soon. Right? Yeah, it was like you really know? cool in high school. And yeah, then exactly. Just, and then he got out of high school and everyone's like, well, yeah, we, I mean, we're all cool now, I guess. <laughs> but the Brits kind of always did that. They have that class, you know, their vehicles always have class, like... They don't really build, when you think of supercars, you know, you've got the Aston Martins. They're beautiful cars, and they definitely perform, but they never really put out a lot of competition for, like, Lamborghini and Ferrari and all of that, you know? They just kind of got that, like, we have a really fast, classy car now, and we like that. This'll do, you know? (laughs) I think you caught it right there. This'll do, (laughs) right, you know? Yeah, it's like, those other ones are faster, but ours is really nice. You mentioned like Ferrari and Lamborghini. So there's like the Italian, what's the Italian bikes that Hammond talks about? Like Ducatis. Ducatis. And there's this uh, Italian phrase, uh, La Bella, I'm going to butcher this, La Bella Figura. <laughs> and it's like cutting a b- beautiful figure, right? Like that's that's sort of like the rough, I think even Hammond says like that's the rough translation. Right. Because when you look at a Ducati, there's something, there's something beautiful about the way that that bikes put together right absolutely i'm not a sport bike guy and every time i go into a dealership you know you see the panigale there and you're like i it's i like looking at it yeah like i have no interest in riding sport bikes mostly because i would immediately die (laughs) but i have no business ever owning one and i'm i'm very confident in that choice but like yeah you walk in and i see all the other sport bikes are there and i'm like not interested and you see a ducati and you're like ah that's a it's a work of art yeah you know they have that feel Ducati's kind of always done that too. Italy in general, really. You know, I'm not like a historian and I've never been to Italy, but when I think <laughs> of Italy and I'm not thinking about like World War II Mussolini Italy, I'm just thinking about, you know, the vineyards, the museums, right? The mm-hmm. cool shit that the Romans left behind. And you're like, there's a lot of architecture and artistic culture that, yeah, okay, cool England, you got your castles and stuff, but there's something that's like especially beautiful about just that scenery right and i think that's going to inspire different motorcycles and i think you could make that argument right you kind of imagine like the guy that's hand crafting this motorcycle in the shop like singing that romantic italian music that they would play on those <laughs> rowboats in venice yeah. you know he's like like kind of serenading this bike as he's made it yeah for sure you know whereas a lot of the other bikes and i mean this is of course all just personal preference but i i do feel like a lot of the other bikes come off as a machine whereas like some of them definitely come off more as artwork one thing i like that he talks about is kind of this the it's how motorcycles initially were embraced by cyclists it was kind of like a well we like riding bicycles and now they put a motor in it that's really neat you know whereas now we've kind of got this rift you know like i fucking don't really like cyclists 
you know? When I'm on the road, car or bike or truck or whatever, cyclists, they bother me. I own a bicycle. I do occasionally ride it. I would not consider myself a cyclist. But now there's, you know, the, the amount of times I've been going up or down a big twisty hill somewhere and there's a cyclist riding up it and you're like, I just want to go really fast up this and you're in my way. And I feel like that cyclist is always like, quit being an asshole. You know, like there's just like, I don't think we have that same connection. And he touches on it later, but it's, it'd be interesting to know when that happened. Cause he, he says originally that it was, you know, one and the same. Actually, he talks about how one of the first like big publications to talk about motorcycles was in a cycling magazine. Uh, refresh. I think that was called Motorcycling, like 1902, that magazine came out. Well, it was before motorcycling that was actually right. just a cycling-specific magazine. That's and right. And that was really where they first talked about it, which is you'd never see that now. Bicycles in a motorcycle magazine or motorcycles in a bicycle magazine. No, because like anyone who walks around makes that connection, right? They know that there's been this sort of, uh, I don't know the biological term, but like when the species sort of like separates, mm. right? The You've got the wolves and you got the dogs. Right. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> Where did we fuck it up? Anyone can see that. And so I think you're right. And that's something maybe that I overlooked when I was reading these early chapters is how there was like this immediate attitude that just was like embraced it. They're like, okay, we're pedaling one day. Okay, now we got a motor. Mm. Cool, right? But nowadays people are like purists about that. They're like, no, no, I only pedal. For sure. And I wonder if that has anything to do with the fact that like now these activities are largely extracurricular, you know, whereas back then things would have been looked at as an alternative to walking, you know, like you're fucking walking or you're taking a horse carriage and that's it. That was a big idea that Hammond was talking about is like, cause it was like affordable. Mm. Like you had to be rich to own a car. For right? sure. Like Henry Ford wasn't producing millions of Fords yet. Toffs, he called them <laughs> in, the, in the racing world. Anyone that was in the car racing world, he referred to them as Toffs. I love the I love just the British language in this book. Oh yeah, you yeah. know Toffs and Yabos and Keen as mustard. You know that was another one that you had uh, talked about earlier. Uh, give it the beans. <laughs> it's so good. All of that alone is just so entertaining, and especially having watched him on um, Top Gear. And uh, the Grand Tour, and you hear his voice and the way he's kind of like childish and giddy and like just reading his book and just imagining that like childish tone with it. It's <laughs> it's so good. I never got bored of Richard Hammond in this book, right? Because it's very much his voice coming through. And that's something that you can pick up on. But unfortunately, like in some of these later chapters, and I don't want to discourage anyone that has read this book or is curious about reading this book, but I feel that... Hammond sort of lost me a little bit, lost my interest, I guess you could say. And when he gets into the sport bikes and he gets into the sport bikes heavy and I was like, okay, I'm here for this and I'm going to get through this, but this isn't my mojo, you know? And so part of that is, I think, I don't think I was I'm ever going to be able to match his enthusiasm for mm. just that class of motorcycle. Right. So for me, always been sort of like a cruiser guy. And then I also sort of felt that he like didn't really talk about dirt bikes at all. And so I think, yeah, you know, that's a I, good point. I, I kind of felt that dirt bikes were sort of like this ugly stepchild that we all kind of knew was in the closet, but he doesn't even like allude to them 
really much at all, you know? Yeah, because I was really looking forward to seeing when that was going to come up because the early motorcycles, largely all the racing is off-road. It's dirt track racing just because they didn't have paved tracks yet. That's and right. I was like, yeah. I wonder if this is something that once they started making paved tracks, if dirt bikes branched off at the same time and there was some guys that were like, no, we like this. You, you go do your paved track. Yeah, because Hammond never really talks about that, right? Yeah. So it's sort of a question mark, like where... Where did that sort of like uh, why in the road happen mm. in the history of motorcycles? Yeah, that's a good point. I remember early on thinking like anticipating when I was going to read about that as a dirt biker myself and it never happened. But I guess I kind of lost that train of thought until you brought it up now. I can see what you're saying, though, about the sport bikes. Like when he gets into the individual countries later on, America's kind of left out aside from like popular culture, like when he talks about movies and whatnot. That's really the only time he talks about American bikes, the choppers and stuff, which, I mean, you have to acknowledge choppers, that whole scene was a huge part of motorcycle history and culture in our area, at least. Maybe not so much, you know, in the UK and Italy and Japan and wherever, but, you know, in North America, for sure, that was a huge part of the culture. He talks about, and he's got a chapter on... I'm calling them chapters. You might want to just call them sections. It's neither here nor there, but the motorcycle movie with uh, Dennis Hopper and uh, Fonda, what the hell's his name? Peter Fonda. Peter Fonda. And Jack Nicholson. And Jack Nicholson. Easy Rider. Easy Rider. And that's a very important motorcycle movie in North America. And I'm glad that Hammond talks about it because in that famous sort of like clip from the movie, right? Where you got the two choppers side by side. Like, that's it. Like that, you don't need to go into it much more. And maybe that's why he doesn't. And it's too bad because I could have read, you know, a whole, I could have read a whole nother book by Richard Hammond if he just wanted to talk about the chopper specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Or just the customization, right? I think, you know, you can just be like, yeah, I hashtagged it. There it is. And then he kind of moves on. But it's really too bad because I think that there was a lot of room that I guess what I'm saying is like, you know, if he wrote a different book, what would that different book be like, right? But, but that's not the book we have, you right. know? So it's unfortunate because I guess I had some expectations that weren't being filled. But on one side, like, I understand, like, his interest is, you know, the speed, the power, how fast these things are going. And we're not talking about dirt bikes and how high they go, right? When they're like doing crazy jumps. And we're not necessarily talking about how long these motorcycles are when we're talking about like the rake of the front forks, right? right? right. So. Yeah, it's kind of the idea of like, when did we invent this bike and what was the pursuit of top speed is kind of the whole idea. Because he cites that stuff throughout it, right? Like, yeah. this is how big the engine was. This racer, this is how fast he got going. Like, mm. this is this is the speed record that he did, right? This is what he hit when he did this turn in this race, right? It is kind of funny that the few times that he does discuss... American motorcycle culture early on during like the founding of motorcycles. He touches on it a little bit, but he does later on. He does talk about like the hell's angels a little bit, how they're founded in uh, 1948 in California. Some of the unfortunate events that happened around their club, you know, some of the things that got them bad publicity, including that one famous picture there's the guy on the motorcycle and it's at this like big biker rally and the photographer staged a bunch of like empty beer bottles around him and like took this super cool guy. And that's kind of how he reflected upon 
American biker culture, you know? I think there's a lot more to be discussed there, like the ingenuity of the chopper world, these guys that were trying to ride these things across this massive country of the United States and on bikes that were very sketchy and making them sketchier to look cool and just finding a way to make them get there, you know? There's a lot of inventions that came out of that that just kind of got skipped. Yeah, and a big thing of that too, and it's so unfortunate because he talks a lot about racing and racing is about efficiency and performance. But once you start talking about like the customization of motorcycles, whether it's choppers or cafe racers, it's like the guys were like trying to make them lighter, right? They were trying to take off the stuff that they didn't need to make these things go faster. Because I mean, you take a pound off something that only weighs a few hundred pounds, you're going to gain top speed. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that was, that's a big component of customization, right? That sort of kind of gets left out of this book. You know, it's customization in general. Like I know there was a couple times I wish that I almost could have asked him a question. Uh, one lady he talks about in the book, Beatrice Schilling. Now, fascinating character. Young lady gets into motorcycle racing, amateur racing, like in her mid-20s like a, a very, a very good racer also. And she was also, uh, an aeronautical engineer. You know, she invented, uh, what's called, that's there's some unfortunate names for it. I believe one of them was Beatrice's Orphis. <laughs> yeah. Or like the Tilly Orphis officially. <laughs> yeah. But officially termed the RAE restrictor. So it's a neat invention, uh, where it's it's regulates fuel to the carb on the Spitfire fighter engines. So they had problems with during combat maneuvers. The so the, the Spitfire is an airplane, though, right? Yes, this is like the Battle of Britain. You know, um, right. this is like Germany and Britain. Like when invention in the in the air fighter world is like really just picking up, and it's like neck and neck. It's like whoever can make the next invention really has has the has the war kind of thing. And so they found that during combat maneuvers the spitfighter would uh the spitfire rather sorry um would experience like fuel loss to the carburetor and then the the engine would cut out which is obviously not great in a dogfight during <laughs> combat maneuvers right when you're in the sky flying yeah <laughs> so she uh, she engineered this specific fuel system with this specific orifice that would regulate flow to and from the carburetor um, during these maneuvers to keep the motor running, the engine running steadily through them. And it was like a huge invention. She would have been like 30 at this time. So this phenomenal engineer created something that largely changed, changed the Battle of Britain. And then right beside this, he shows her bike. It's, a, it's an early 30s Norton. Beautiful machine. And it was one of the bikes that she raced. Like one of the coolest looking bikes I've ever seen. It's got... Um, you know, the old spoked wheels, it's got the girder style springer front end. Um, it's got like the, the mini handle on the rear fender, the slanted muffler, the fishtail pipes, all of these things that you really see coming back in these trends again. But I, like, he doesn't discuss if any of this is her own customizations, you know, which I would imagine being this phenomenal engineer and a racer, she must have tinkered, you know? But he doesn't discuss it at all, whether she customized her bikes in any way or if this bike that she's sitting on in this picture is just completely factory, which I would imagine it isn't. It looks quite a bit different from the rest of the race bikes. And I just there was multiple times that I kind of felt like 
I wish I could have known a little bit more, you know, not just how the industry progressed, but how each individual person or how customization happened for flair and not necessarily performance, you know? That made me think um, earlier today, you know, obviously we were finished reading this book before the, like I literally finished reading this book like earlier today, right? Yeah, me I'm, also. I'm just like. That's like <laughs> high school all over yeah, again. Yeah, I'm like, I'm like a kid doing like homework <laughs> on his way to school, right? <laughs> yeah. But he's got a chapter on Evil Knievel. And I think this is like really interesting, right? Because there's something that about him including Evil Knievel in the short history of the motorcycle that I'm like, I don't really understood why he was including this when he could have included more information on like Beatrice. You know what I mean? Right. You raise a good point. You you know, you're you you raise a good point. Like, because I mean, like Evil Knievel, I think has his own page in history, and I don't think that. I need to read about Evil Knievel in this book because the guy was just like, you know, and Hammond even says it, like just became like a expert merchandiser, right? Yeah. Like, he's just selling Evil Knievel play dolls or whatever the hell it was, right? I get it. The guy's on motorcycles. He's jumping over stuff. But I'm like, there's something about the inclusion of that that I was like, oh, okay, I'm reading this. This is entertaining. But I don't know that I really need, because for me, Evil Knievel is like, Evil Knievel's first and then like, the fact that he was doing on motorcycles came second. You know what I mean? Right, right. You know, so I don't know if it was by design or uh, if this is just the path he wanted to go with the book. But again, like this is a, uh, would have been a great time to fill in a section about American motorcycle customization. Yeah, would have fit in perfectly. But it just didn't really touch on it. You know, I unfortunate, but at the same time, I still came out of this book with so much more knowledge, like more than I could have even put into notes. For sure. Yeah, for sure. You know. I like how he also like touches on human nature. We invented the motorcycle and two things that men will do pretty much immediately after obtaining any new item at all, especially if it has wheels is first, they're going to race it, you know, and secondly, (laughs) they're going to fight with it, you know, and it's, it's so true, like throwing pickles at a wall or office chairs or whatever you can imagine. You know, I've been on a drilling rig watching the fluid coming through and you, throw earplugs in and see whose earplug gets to the other end faster. It's just something we'll always race things, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, fighting each other with long cardboard rolls. It was, it was pretty funny to just the reflection of the childish nature of human beings into these like vast technological advances. And there's these guys like, um, I think it was like Barry Sheen in some of the later chapters and some of these like hardcore speed bike racer guys, like the super bike racer guys Mm -hmm. and how they would just like the one guy, it's in the book. I might be getting this wrong, but just for this purpose, let's just say it was Barry Shane. He like won the race and then immediately pulled over, leaned his bike up against like the barrier and then ran into a porta potty to take a leak and then did like the cool down lap. You know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. there was like, there's like this very like fun attitude that Hammond touches on that a lot of these like professional racers had, you know, they, some of them were serious, but the majority of them, the guys that were winning races over and over again, they were just having a good time. Yeah. You know what I mean? For sure. You know, like, it was definitely Barry Shane who, like, uh, Hammond was saying, like, he drilled a, a hole in his helmet so he could, like, smoke a cigarette, you know? <laughs> <laughs> now, that's style. You know? Right? That so. reminds me of you, actually. I don't remember <laughs> where we were going. We were maybe Nordeg or something. We were on a road trip and watching you take your gloves off so you could light a cigarette while you were riding your motorcycle. <laughs> And not motorcycle gloves either, just leather work gloves. 
Yeah, actually, funny enough, they're a set of gloves that your father gave me. Oh, of yeah, course. Yeah, that makes were, them even better. Yeah, deerskin ones. I He recently just gave me a pair of deer, deerskin gloves. They're oh, very nice. comfortable. <laughs> uh, touching back on the British terms that he uses in here, I like the first use of yabos, motorcycle yabos. When he talks about the very first official motorcycle race, a bunch of people threw nails all over the track. <laughs> like, Troublemakers. Listen, we can't have anything nice. Like every no. time there's like, this is this like really exciting point in history that I'm sure they probably didn't grasp the relevance of it at the time. You know, they're like, it was a bunch of dudes racing around on these fucking motorized bicycles, which they were really not motorcycles as we understand them now. No. They were motorized bicycles much more than their own machine. And a bunch of kids are just like, let's go out and throw nails everywhere. <laughs> like, like on these things that are already so sketchy, you know, you're talking leather drive belts. Could yeah. you imagine riding with a leather drive belt in the rain? You wouldn't be talking a toothed belt, you know, like no. this is just leather on a metal wheel. And it would be a nightmare. And, you know, he talks about like the valves would expand. So you'd have to bring a file. So mid race, you could file down your valves like <laughs> or like patches of leather yeah. to fit to patch your belt or like to sections to take out, like take out and reconnect your belt because it would stretch with heat <laughs> like insanity part of like the general toolkits back then he talks about how a general toolkit would include leather asbestos sheet copper wire spark plugs exhaust valves a spare battery nobody packs a spare battery now no nobody packs exhaust valves if your manufacturer recommended that you had to pack exhaust valves on your trip as part of like self-maintenance people would go fucking ballistic <laughs> like <laughs> But you had to be able to do everything. Like, it's just insanity just because the, the bikes, the reliability wasn't even a thought yet. It was just, how do we make this thing go forward? And from there, we'll figure out reliability. Like we talked about, they didn't even think about containing the oil. It was like the oil has to go from this jug onto these rotating parts. And uh, we don't really care where it goes from there. Like, it's just down, just wherever it ends up. In the early sort of pages of Hammond's book, you know, there's a picture of uh, a guy like on the side of the road and he's got a sign like just anticipating people to break down and he would be the one that would like this guy yeah. just waiting in the ditch, you know, so it's like black and white photo like, OK, yeah, that guy broke down like I'll go out and help him. Right. And so like it goes back to the 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 attitude of mind that Hammond was talking about. Right. Because it didn't take you very long to figure out that owning one of these early machines but they were going to, it was going to fuck up on you, right? Or conk out. I think that's the terminology he used. Yeah. Like, it was going to conk out. And so that you sort of had this attitude that if you were just going, you know, to to use your words, version two, glide down the cobblestone, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that something was going to rattle loose. So you had to be, pay, be prepared for that. It's not like getting on a motorcycle in 2021, just firing it up and going because, I've been on lots of motorcycle trips where I've had apprehensions of stuff conking out, right? But it never happened. Right. You know, you just do your maintenance, right? You change your spark plugs, you get your oil change, you check your tire pressures. If you got a chain, you check chain tension, right? You do a few other checks and you're good to go. But I mean, like these guys, like you had to pack that stuff, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it wasn't until years later that, you know, you could get on a motorcycle and go, I'll bring things in case. Yeah. Back then it was, I'll bring things 
for when. Yeah. You know, like he talks about how a lot of the times, if you just started walking to the next town at the same time that someone left on a motorcycle, you'd probably get there at the same time. You'd spend less time traveling on the motorcycle. You know, it would take you less time to cover the distance, but you would be spending times inevitably fixing things on the side of the road and almost redesigning things on the side of the road, filing down exhaust valves, like just pure insanity. Well, there was like a phrase that I had to look up because you talked about, you know, these motorcyclists, these bikers wearing boiler suits. I'm like, what's yeah, a I boiler suit? So I like looked it up. I'm like, oh. It's coveralls. They're they're wearing coveralls. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, I think that was one of the sections where he's comparing the uh the four wheeled toffs to the yeah. motorcycle <laughs> racers. Yeah. Um one thing that I thought was phenomenal that uh I never would have guessed how early it was, and I think it's worth talking about because we have two books here about people circumnavigating the globe in this season. But the very first one was in nineteen twelve. The first circumnavigation of the globe on a motorcycle took one year. That's like, in my mind, I was extremely impressed. Like, I didn't think it would have been capable at that time. Just the things that I would think about, like, if you told me, like, okay, tomorrow we're going to get on a motorcycle and go for a motorcycle trip around the world. First thing I'd think about is, like, okay, where are my fuel stops? And how am I going to, like, and, like, find some maps right right and the thing is like 1912 like where are your feel like there's not going to be a shell a petro you know a chevron just no, down the road the infrastructure is much much more forgiving yeah nowadays you know i don't i don't know how and the funny thing was i believe that was just a side note you know there was yeah. like a picture of a bike and then it was like one of those small little asides that said opposite oh yeah the little yeah, yeah this fucking lunatic rode his motorcycle around the world it took one year and i was like can i can I have more? Yeah. Can you give me a little? This is fascinating. Can I have a little bit more? Nowadays, there's areas you go, and these adventure bikes are designed to do 400 and some kilometers on a tank. And still, regularly, they pack a fuel bag. You know? Like, back then, 1912. What? Are you kidding me? Like, Yeah. For, oh, for sure. This is still the era of, like, to give you an idea of the reliability of motorcycles at this time, the uh, very first official... Isle of Man TT race was in 1904, so right in the same area, and I think it was 11 bikes that entered the qualifying race, and like seven of them didn't make it to the end, and it was like a 25-mile race, 25 <laughs> miles, seven bikes out of 11 in a you know, high-performance, like these were top-of-the-line bikes, seven of them didn't make it 25 miles. This dude went around the world. <laughs> like, what? Like, people nowadays, if you're like, I'm going to ride around the world, people, unless they're like motorcycle enthusiasts that have read about other people doing it, everyone's kind of like, oh, that's, isn't that kind of crazy? Like, what about the dangers and how are you going to do it? What are you going to bring? How are you going to get fuel? Like, in 1912, when this guy said, I'm going to do it, everyone must have been like, okay, you're drunk. Like, <laughs> there's no way you're doing it. What I like about this book is Hammond's a character throughout it. And I think we sort of already sort of drove that point home. But that's something that I think because of his personality, he wouldn't have been doing the topic justice is if he just sort of like canceled himself out as a character. Like if he was just, I'm just here to put the words on the page. He's very much a character throughout that book. Mm. And so I think that's helpful 
as you read it because he'll also like reflect there's like there's like pictures of him and there's pictures of his motorcycles kind of peppered throughout this book and i think it's sort of helpful like because you'll even say like oh i had one of these or mm. uh my buddy had one of these right or this or i had this and then i you know i got rid of it at 17 so i could get this car so i could get this other motorcycle right mm. and so i think that's a helpful attitude because you talk to anybody that's owned a motorcycle and gotten rid of one and gotten gotten it back or has just owned motorcycles their entire life, there's sort of like this history that they can tell you. And so I think without maybe, I don't know if he's doing that intentionally or not. I think that's sort of like highlights a motorcyclist trait is they can tell you when they had what, you know, why did they get rid of it? Right. Yeah. Sometimes they can even tell you how much they sold things for or how much they bought things for. Right. So and I think that's like true for me. That's true for you. Other guys that we know that have had motorcycles, they'll tell you their first bike. Yeah. They'll tell you some of the crazy stuff. Like it's not like cars where they, for some of us, it's just a uh, thing to get from point A to point B, right? I wonder if, and I had thought about this early on, and uh, Richard Hammond even kind of touches on it in the first paragraph about motorcycles kind of tap into this like biological connection to a horse. You know, when you ride a horse, it's a living creature. You have this, this connection to it. You know, it's, it's not a machine. You, you're kind of taking care of each other on the road. And riding a motorcycle is very similar. When I'm driving my truck, I'm kind of just, I'm not really entirely there for it. You know, whereas like when I'm on my bike, I'm always like very closely paying attention to the feel of it, you know. Even things down to like, how is the bike balanced as far as luggage? You know, you get too much weight on the back and you start getting that front end wobble a little bit at certain speeds. Or like if your tires are wearing weird, you'll get that. You know, what's what's the sound of the bike? Is there anything that's a little bit off? You kind of have this connection to the machine a little bit more that I, I wonder if it does tap into that, you know, like a huge amount of time that we were riding horses and caring for horses. And I wonder if it it's the fact that it taps into into that that kind of makes us feel a bit more of a connection. We remember it a bit more than just, we don't necessarily just look at it as a mode of transportation. You know, there's like a personal connection to each one. I think you're right. Like, I'm not a horse guy, but uh, horses definitely have a personality. And I've definitely, sure. I've definitely interpreted my motorcycles of, of having a, pers a personality, right? Like, he amphor uh, amphipromorphize these machines. They're not living, but mm. there's there's a sense that they are because you understand the nuance of them. Right. And you're right. And Richard Hammond, especially in the last few pages, he, he sort of drives his point home about the connection. Right. And I think, I think that's right. Like I remember when I sold, I had a 2007 Triumph Bonneville. Right. I'll probably mention that motorcycle again later on in this podcast. There was a, a key to start the bike and then there was a key to lock the handlebars. Right. So right, right. you can just knock it in neutral and roll the bike way. It was locked sort of the side so thieves you know if they you try have to steal to it pick it up yeah exactly yeah. right and so this key hung on the same key ring as as the one that started my bike and it would swing right as you, as you rode it and it like marked up the paint in this really unique way so that like after forty five thousand kilometers or however many you know damn near fifty thousand kilometers mm -hmm. when i sold the bike it had like this sort of like semicircle, like this almost like this uh uh, moon shape that it had worn into the paint, right? It, right. Was, it was sort of like taking on its own or showing its own personality, right? Like it wasn't this immaculate. It's not that it was like broken down and beat up, right? But it's sort of like the little things that 
I never really paid much attention to. Like, obviously, I would have paid attention to if, like, the bike, like, got a hole in the tire or, you know, a big dent in the tank, right? But it had all these little weird characteristics that that sort of, like, made it unique, you know? I think it's kind of like the idea of a guy that has cowboy boots because he's a rancher and they're, like, worn in and beat up and have character like a good pair of boots that have character and the guy that has cowboy boots for calgary stampede oh yeah you know like the boots that are worn in have character or even look at like have you ever sat down like with a group of people and noticed on somebody's boots that they have a shifter mark like a toe shifter mark on their left boot yeah and you're like those are motorcycle boots that guy rides rides motorcycles in those boots because i've had boots that have worn exactly (laughs) all all i wear is boots and all of them have motorcycle shifter marks on them you know it's it's these marks that kind of create a character and like you said with each individual bike there's something like that this spot that wears you know and it kind of just gives you a feel for it you know it's funny that we're talking about that because as i was finishing this book i noticed like the back of the book felt weird like the copy of the book that i have it's like a hardcover book it's like it's printed really nice like Mm -hmm. This isn't a cheap book per se, but yeah, like I must have gotten water in the book because like even in like the center of it, you could see like the ripples from the water. Right. And it's like you don't you don't really notice it until you until I like sort of felt the back. So I don't know if like accidentally. So already like this book about motorcycles got like these weird sort of like details for me, like reading it over the last few days. That's why I almost exclusively buy used books. Like I don't. I won't buy a new book unless I absolutely cannot find it at the used bookstore for a long time because there's just something about it. Again, it's I would way rather buy a used motorcycle than a used car because there's something about it. You know, you see it like in a couple of bikes that I've stripped down in my day, like you just see these neat little things where somebody's like modified something or done something terrible with it or just cut something off or, you know, just the way the bike has worn. It's I reflect fondly upon those things whereas like in a car i'm like oh it's just beat up (laughs) you know (laughs) like i look at it negatively whereas on a bike you're like this is neat you know there's something even if it's just like you know you strip it down and get into the back panel and there's like somebody's tiny screwdriver in there that they like put it back together and you know like i had a 89 k100 Beautiful bikes, really cool piece of technology. Like 1989 ABS fuel injection, heated grips, 1989. Cool. My 2009 Shadow was carbureted. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, you know, like this just shows you the Germans were, were pretty phenomenal. A total nightmare bike to take apart. Nightmare. And the way the electrical was run was unmodifiable. Like you had to install like entirely new electrical to make this thing work. Uh, if you wanted to like remove parts. But when I got it apart, I remember struggling and being like, this is going to be a nightmare to put it back together. And as I was taking it apart, I literally found like tools in certain <laughs> sections between body panels where you could tell somebody had been like using a little screwdriver to like reach in to pry a clip into place. And then it clipped into place and the screwdriver like stayed in back there. And they were like, yeah, that's staying. <laughs> you know, like I'm not taking that apart. Like, and most of the time in a car, I feel like I'd be like, really guy, you know, you left that, but like on a motorcycle, I kind of laugh and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm in the spirit. I can understand the spirit of that guy in that moment where you're like, I'm so tired of trying to put this back together. You know, <laughs> I don't know why I look at it with a more positive feeling than anything else. But with motorcycles, it's just how I see it. So you think people should read this book 
like a, a short history of the motorcycle, Richard Hammond. You think people should read this book? I really enjoyed it. And there was some fun facts in there that even if you're not going to, you know, absorb all of the motorcycle information, there's just neat stuff about like when he's discussing like celebrities that ride the whole section of Lawrence of Arabia was fascinating. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, like that guy died on his bike. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Swerving. <laughs> To avoid two kids on bicycles, yeah. which is just further proof that kids and cyclists are the fucking worst. T.E. Lawrence? T.E. Lawrence. Yeah, that's right. Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, Lawrence of Arabia. I just naturally call him Lawrence of Arabia, even though I literally have his name written down right in front of me. But, you know, I had seen that movie and I didn't really understand how, like, he was a, a hero in the motorcycle world. Like, it was pretty phenomenal. Like, one of his last bikes his superior SS 100 is like in a museum. Like if somebody bought it privately and then put it in a museum, cause he was just like this renowned motorcycle legend who actually, he wrote his own book about motorcycles called the road where he talks about like racing his bike on the military base against like old fighter planes. Pretty cool. I was like, as soon as I saw that, I was like, man, I wish we had that on the season. That's probably a great book. Richard Hammond even says himself that it's like his favorite motorcycle book ever written so it's definitely on my list now maybe that'll have to do uh in the end of the season when we do like uh other recommendations we'll have to do like a season on planes and somehow like sneak that in there in case you didn't get enough with the seven motorcycle books here's another one yeah no i feel like at the end of the season we could just do like because every time I read a book, I feel like every time I read a book, they talk about another book. And then and you just want to read four more. Yeah, exactly. So at the end of the season, it'd be nice to just do like other recommendations. Oh, if for sure. If you liked all of these, you'll probably also like these. Because I have a handful of other books. I have a, a book specifically about the development of the chopper. Oh, nice. Like it's it's really cool. It's It's a similar design to this, like a bigger hardcover book. Lots of pictures and just like neat facts about the history of the chopper. Really cool book. I think Hammond's book is something that you could just like throw on your coffee table or on the kitchen table or you could put it on the bench in the garage. You know, like I see this as a book that you could like pick up if you're like having a drink with a buddy and you could flip through it and look at the pictures and that's okay. You could read some of like the little uh, blurbs, right? And pick up on some of those facts. And it's even that like you could be sitting around with like three or four of your buddies. And you could have two or three of your buddies like arguing over how something gets put together and you're all having a pint or beer. And then you, you could have enough time to read one of the sections of Hammond's book. For like, sure. you know, it's not each section. It's not a big time sink. Right. So this book, you could get through it pretty quick, pretty quickly. Right. Yeah. Or you could just like sort of take off like these little bite sized pieces. And so I think. I think that's a good space for the book. It's just to kind of have it out. Mm. And then if you just wanted to kind of just have a have a peek at it, right? Like a garage coffee table book. Yeah, exactly. This is actually when I had a coffee table in my garage. This is exactly the kind of stuff I would have had. This book or like the book about choppers, all that kind of stuff. Like the University of Gravel Roads is another one that's like based exactly on adventure bikes. Just a like cool hardcover books like this with little bits where like every section isn't necessarily a prerequisite for the next section. Right. Yeah. You know, you could kind of flip this open and read something in the middle and probably get grasp all of the knowledge from it. Maybe not all of it if he references something from before, but most of it is just you could take it off, like you said, in bite-sized pieces. Yeah. You know, I'm really excited now 
to go and hang out with like my motorcycle buddies that aren't going to listen to this because they don't do podcasts or books <laughs> and just have all of these super neat fun facts about like, oh, for sure. You know, the first circumnavigation of the globe was by a guy named Clancy Stern in 1912. And then like, oh, the very first Isle of Man TT was in 1904. And they didn't even close the roads when they did it. So there was cars coming the other <laughs> way, you know, like things like that. And people are going to be like, this is like, if you want a fun fact book, to just like impress your motorcycle friends with just like neat little bits of information. This is the book. Yeah, I you agree. Know? It's insightful as to what makes a motorcycle rider who they are. It's full of fun facts. And just like you said, pieces you can take bit by bit. You don't need to dive into this as a big project. And, and I don't think that that was ever the intention of Hammond going into this. Because mm. right? like you said, it's the short history of the motorcycle, right? And so I think he's well aware, just based off of who he is, what sort of experience he has, where his, you know, his hobbies, his uh, proclivities, right? And that sort of thing towards, the, towards motorcycles and cars and all the crazy stuff that he does for television, right? And so I think you're right. I think this book definitely has, it's measured out. You know what I mean? It's like, there's first gear, second gear, third gear, right? But I, I think in this case, you can you can go about it. Like, you, you could probably pick up this book and read it, uh, read it backwards, and you'd probably be okay for sure. You know, you know, maybe maybe not so much the introduction and like sort of the final few paragraphs, but I mean, like, if you wanted to just read, you could almost read it in any order, and you'd probably be okay. Oh, absolutely. You know, I'd. I enjoyed the experience, and again, it's not a really long book. No. So it, it doesn't feel daunting in any way. And like as a motorcycle rider myself, I really appreciated the way he touches on the way the world views motorcycle riders. Yeah. You know, like one of my favorite parts, he talks about like how people kind of see motorcycle riders as like outsiders and kind of like odd. And he had a really neat point he made about how early motorcycles – you know, they're death traps, they're impractical, like they're unnecessary, and you're just exposed to the weather. The riding gear isn't waterproof, and people chose to ride these things, you know, like, you don't need to do that. Like, it's not even really that practical. It's probably fun, but they're early bikes, you know, like, <laughs> like I don't remember what year it was. He talks about them, like, raising the speed limits from two miles an hour to, like, 14 miles yeah yeah so yeah so it's not even that exciting like people were trying to get 20 miles an hour yeah like "Mm, no (laughs) no so it's not even like you're getting the excitement yet and it probably did seem odd to people like why would you choose to do that why wouldn't you travel by carriage or motor car because you have shelter you have room to transport things and listen to the radio yeah it's much less likely to break down like, you're literally just taking the most uncomfortable, and it would have been. You know, suspension was either non-existent or terrible. The brakes were literally bicycle wheel-style brakes, which would be useless because <laughs> the bikes would be so heavy. And it's like you're just taking this, like, ridiculous, impractical, uncomfortable way of transportation and loving it. So people were probably like, yeah, hey, you're fucking weird, man. <laughs> like, they're just that person that puts themselves through that has to be a bit different, you know? And we've just kind of evolved from those people. I guess, <laughs> I don't know. I think this is, I'm not going to call this an important book. I don't, this is something that you could definitely bypass. Like if if you were like super curious 
about the books that we're reading and we're going to talk about each episode of the first season of this podcast. This is one that I would give a pass if you decided to skip. Now, I don't want you to. Like, I, I want people who are listening to this and I want our friends to read this book because I think it's entertaining and I think that there's enough sort of spread in the content that you're going to be able to get something out of this, mm-hmm. you know? So I'll give you a pass if you decide not to read this, but I think that you could definitely get more out of this podcast and you're probably going to get more out of the motorcycle experience just having this one in the back pocket, so to speak. Having read this one mm. and just having what Hammond uh, discusses in it, I think that'll make you a stronger motorcyclist. I agree. And this book was really fun. You know, like I appreciated my time in it. There's definitely spots where it didn't necessarily pertain to my specific interest. Yeah, but like, that's for me, the, that was Evil Knievel. Like, yeah. I, or even like later on in the like sport bike racing years, not really the route I that's ever true took. Too, yeah. But it's like, like you said, that's perfectly fine because you don't need every piece of this book to understand the rest of it. You like, if you don't feel like reading the entire section about Honda, okay, you know, like you can for sure get into this and pick up really cool information about the history of motorcycles, how they started up, kind of the culture of it early on. And even if you did that, you'd take a lot out of it for sure. You know, like you don't need to dive into the later years of, of the evolution of sport bikes. One thing that just reminded me, and it kind of sounds like we're kind of maybe pointing towards the end of this episode. So this is something that I kind of wanted to sort of touch on before we before we get done talking about this book. And it's it's how people sort of like discover the motorcycle. And Hammond uh, was talking about like the bicycle magazine that became mm. the motorcycling magazine. Mm. What was it like 1902, 1904, summers in there that this magazine. Right, right. It was like. The magazine started writing and photographing and publishing, uh, yeah, publishing a magazine just about motorcycles about as early as it could get, right? Yeah. So this, that was one thing that was super interesting to me that Hammond pointed out is like, as soon as there was motorcycles, like, boom, right there, we're already doing newspaper articles. We're already taking photos of it. And that's one thing that I forgot about my own sort of like history with bikes is reading motorcycle magazines because this is something that you can take it for granted. You can you can pull up your phone, you can type in Chopper, you can type in Cafe Racer, you can type in Ducati, Yamaha, enter whatever year, and you're going to get the information right then and there. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't always like that, and you had to go out of your way to sort of like get this get this sort of information in front of you. And so that's one thing that I really appreciate about Hammond is that he included that bit because I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was like that motorcycling right. magazine so early on. And it's sort of, it, in fact, I actually texted my father because I was like, what was that magazine that we used to read? And it was called like The Horse or something like that. Right. It was like this chopper magazine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it had girls like on the front cover usually or like some badass dude. Like th- they didn't have tits out or anything like that, but it was like, it was a pretty cool magazine to read, right? And so that's sort of era of like purple bikes with bright orange flames. Yeah. Lots of chrome. Yeah. Yeah. You know, know, and they had like all those motorcycle television shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think even like Top Gear was probably at like full power back then, you know? So, (laughs) yeah, that was a different time, you know? Like it seems like now we get it pretty individually. I do, I do still read like Gnarly Magazine and the ton and stuff like that. Like I have a ungodly big stack of motorcycle magazines at home, ADV rider and stuff like that. 
but most of my motorcycle media consumption is YouTube and it's the such and such model bike, such and such year. Why can't I fucking figure this out? You know, like, <laughs> like tell me how to fix this problem. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so specific now, whereas like back then you, you got it in, you know, a whole magazine and you kind of had to digest all of it, you know, like, and that also speaks to, you know, how phenomenal it is that people made these accomplishments without that media. Like you're really diagnosing and figuring it out on your own. Like before YouTube, man, I'm 100% a YouTube mechanic. I don't do anything to any like type of motor without looking it up on YouTube first, you know, like, but back then it was, you know, word of mouth and magazine, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Like you're really <laughs> on your own, you know, it's a different time. It's definitely a different time. We should probably say this just to be like responsible. Like we bought these books and we made the choice to read this book. The publisher didn't say, Hey, here's this free book. You should read it. So we, we did, we did buy this book and that's, yeah. and that's something that we should say. It's cool to read about the history of a motorcycle, something they were doing in like, you know, 1920 with these cool old motorcycles and then seeing a color, like vivid picture of him now on that motorcycle. That was pretty cool. Man, that made me wish I had more money because those <laughs> bikes are not cheap, man. Like there's one old Royal Enfield in there that's like one of the nicest looking bikes I've ever seen. It's like a dark green with a gold Royal Enfield written on it, you know, and it's just like just such cool bikes, but they're so expensive. But one thing I would like to say, if anyone is really like, if you dive into this book and these old bikes really fascinate you, there's a motorcycle museum called the Dream Cycle Motorcycle Museum in Sorrento, BC. Amazing place. Absolutely worth the stop. The guy that owns it and runs it, awesome guy. He has a ton of these old bikes, man. Like he has an original BSA, which just a fun fact, the BSA motorcycles, it stood for British Small Arms. They were a weapons manufacturer and they started making motorcycles. And he's, it's like this like World War One bike that he has. It's He's like the second owner or something. It has the original tires on it, the original paint. It has inside the headlight, which this is back when like it's not an electric headlight. It's like an acetylene-fueled headlight. You have a little <laughs> gas canister on it that you like light separately. It's wild. And the headlight itself has a piece of cardboard over the front with a rectangular slot cut out because you didn't want to like you didn't want the planes overhead seeing too much of your lights at nighttime. So they'd cut a little rectangular slot out so you could just see enough to like navigate the road at night. Like a fascinating piece of motorcycle history. He has like a 19, what is it? Like a 1940s uh, Gallimbardi, which is like this beautiful Italian bike with a sidecar that's been like restored. But there's so few of them left that they're like a, like an Italian icon now. So like if you take that bike to Italy, like they'll essentially confiscate it. It's like a historical monument. Oh. So that like, yeah, if he if it goes back to Italy, you like can't bring it home. They're going to be like, no, this goes to a museum. <laughs> like amazing bikes there. It's really cool, man. Like one of the old uh, like R60 Dakar Rally BMWs that won the Dakar. Like it's so cool. It's such a cool place. So if you read a short history of the motorcycle and it like really resonates with you, that's going to be your paradise. So what's this place called? Dream Cycle Museum. Dream Cycle Museum. Yeah, Sorrento? Sorrento, BC. So it's it's just off of Highway 1. It's so funny because like it, you don't really notice it. I drove by it so many times. I go to the coast every year. And one time I was driving by and the person I was with was like, hey, there's a bunch of motorcycles parked over there at that building. And I was like, oh, that's neat. And then I'm like, 
wait a minute, that's not like a congregation of people on their way. Like, those are old motorcycles. You know, like, what, <laughs> what is happening here? And then we like stopped on the way back and it was like, wait, this is a museum. Like, it's it's so poorly advertised for whatever reason. But I haven't been back through that way in a while. Maybe he's made it better. But uh, I always take Highway 3 now. But it's it's fascinating, man. And he gives you this like little remote. It looks like a TV remote. has a bunch of numbers and then it has a little speaker on it. And then like a lot of the bikes of interest have a little number and you type in the number of the bike and put it up to your ear and the remote like plays recording that he's recorded of his history with this bike and how he got it. And like, it's really cool, man. He has one there. I don't remember the the model, but it's like, it's old, man. It's like, it's just such a unique piece of equipment. And he has like a machine shop there. So, because a lot of these bikes, you can't get parts. So like, machines his own parts and he had this one bike where the motor was pretty much shot and there's like the chance of ever getting another one of these bikes is so rare so he has this one and he really wishes he could get it running but he needs a new motor for it someone one day comes through the museum they're from like out east or something like that and they're looking at this bike and they're like you know i think i have one of those motors and he's like really and he's like, yeah, he's like, look, I don't know anything about these bikes, but like I have a motor that like looks a lot like this. And he's like, well, how? What? This doesn't make any sense. And the guy goes, so my great great grandpa or whatever was in like World War One and through like the Great Depression and all of that. And he had purchased this motorcycle and it meant the world to him. And something happened to it and he lost all of his other possessions. And for some reason, all he could keep was like a piece of this motorcycle. So he gave, I kept the motor of this motorcycle because the rest was wrecked and he just kept this motor because it was like his most prized possession. And he like handed it down through his family and like he got into the hands of this guy that had no interest in motorcycles, but he was like this at one point was somebody's most prized possession to the point that they like kept it through like their greatest suffering and handed it down. So he's like, I'm going to keep it. And then he comes across this motorcycle museum where there's one there and the guy is looking for a motor and he's like, what better place for this to end up? Then at a museum where this guy cherishes all of these monuments. So he has like that whole story recorded in his like museum. It's so cool, man. man all these, badass. it's amazing. Yeah. Like all these bikes have such cool stories and just seeing them, seeing these bikes that have been through like the world wars and like knowing the types of people that would have owned them. Like it's a really cool place, man. Like the first time I went in there, I was like, yep, I'm I'll stay cool. Like, do you have a bunk here? Can I move in? I'll mop the floors, dude. I'll stay here forever. It's paradise. When I was living in this town called Rimby, province of Alberta, lived really close to my father, and he had a great big garage and a shop, right? Had motorcycles, worked on motorcycles, right? Parked our motorcycles there. So a buddy of his from Rocky Mountain House, I can't even remember why he was there, but I think he, like, spent a night at my dad's place. And he's like, oh, like, I was chatting with him. And he's, like, talking to me. He's like, oh, you're a mechanic. He's like, maybe you could help me with my father's motorcycle. So what do you mean? He's like, oh, I can't get it running. I'm like, well, what is it? And it was like, I don't remember what a year, but it was like a late 60s Norton. And he says, yeah, like my dad like brought it over when he like came from fucking Britain or wherever, mm-hmm. wherever this old boy was from in Europe and had to like put it together. Once he got to Canada, it was never like never driven on the highway, but it like kind of got rusted mm. just just kind of from storage and getting passed down to a son who this guy that my father knows. Right. And so, uh, this guy's son like took it apart, had it rebuilt 
uh, or uh, had a lot of the bearings done, uh, painted the frame again, right? And then put it back together, but it didn't run. So what this guy did is like, I was like, yeah, man, like my my old man's like, yeah, there's like tons of room in the garage. Bring your bring your old Norton, like please bring your old yeah, Norton. Yeah, right? I love those bikes, man. So I can't remember if it was like the next weekend or the weekend after, but it was pretty quick. Like this guy actually brought his bike to Rimby, this old Norton, and yeah, it didn't run, and he just like couldn't figure it out. So I was like, okay, I'll have a crack at this. So I figured out what year it was. I figured out sort of like just based off of like what I could find on the motorcycle, and then just like essentially use the internet, right? I, got, yeah. I found some old wiring diagrams and he had uh, some of the wiring uh, backwards. Oh, uh, yeah. And so it, it took me a couple nights, but eventually I figured it out and I like figured the wiring out and just double checked just with a meter to make sure I wasn't going to fry anything once I once I turned the key on and I actually got this old Norton running for this guy. And man, he was amplified because this was his father's bike that his father had kept for, for like, sure. you know? So I think it's really... It's fun and it's cool that you hear about these these bikes that these guys have kept for years and years and years. And I it felt I felt fantastic that I was like able just to like have a few beers, go on the internet, find mm-hmm. some old wiring diagrams and like essentially make this guy's, you know, old Norton commando run again, right? So Yeah, yeah. Uh, my father didn't get too much into motorcycles. Like a little bit, he has a couple stories, but like my grandfather has some wild old Harley stories. And I'm always like, man, I wish I had like some pictures of that or something. Like, it's so cool, that history of the motorcycle in my family. I'd love to be able to see more of it. You know, it's a neat thing because, you know, they touch, he touches on it in the book a bit, like the, just this sense of connection between motorcycle riders, you know, like the iconic motorcycle wave, which always feels cool. Uh, until you realize that they're on a scooter. Um, (laughs) but, uh, but no, there's like there's just this this sense of companionship, this understanding that you both share this passion. So it's always cool, especially when it's something that doesn't click. It's like music, you know. You have when you, family members that are like into instruments and stuff like that. They all play instruments. Very musical people. It's kind of the same connection, you know. Just that history of that that passion for the motorcycles. Like when you when I sit and listen to my grandpa tell stories, you're like, man, what a different time. But then also you're like. It feels like that, but you're like, well, I'm doing that now, you know, and 40, 50 years from now, someone's going to go, what a different time, you know, (laughs) like, but it's, so it's like, you kind of live in that past, but you're like, but I'm potentially living it right now. Kind of just got to experience it and there'll be memories eventually. I don't know what else to say about Hammond's book. No, I think we covered it pretty good. I mean, for a small book, it's a pretty good length episode. There's definitely more to say about Hammond's book. We haven't exactly like dug up all the words so to speak right yeah there's i have a lot of notes that i like because i didn't want to talk about everything that i wrote but i wanted to have it all written down in case i you know so i could touch on it along the way as it comes up there's definitely stuff in here like i wouldn't want to talk about all of it because then i feel like you kind of you're just giving away all the information you know there's you could definitely listen to this podcast go read this book and still have a bunch of wow moments yeah. And you're like, oh, that's, I had no idea. That's really interesting. Yeah. I think our experience with Hammond's book, like, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read this book and you want to, I think that you might have a different experience, right? If you're like a super bike guy, this will probably resonate with you more than it Absolutely. will have with us. For sure. You know, if, if you're into how like the cafe racers sort of like evolved into like the super bikes of the time, right? Mm. And, 
the land speed records and that sort of thing and who's winning the big races and how many races did there win. Like if you're into that sort of thing and this, this you're going to, you're going to be able to get more out of it, I think. So, yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of guys that like watch that Moto GP world that this, they would get like, I really enjoyed this bike as someone that doesn't watch Moto GP. And there's going to be guys out there that watch that, that are really going to be able to absorb a lot more appreciation from this. If you're listening and you happen to know us, I'd be more than happy to lend this book out to somebody, you know, for the sake of like either, you know, to anyone really, not just buddies that are into motorcycles, but someone that's not also for the sake of like, this is kind of why, you know, there's a neat history and this is talks about the people that ride and why they like riding and some of the unique characters that have been a part of this world, you know, Clancy Stern, Beatrice Schilling, T.E. Lawrence, like there's a good handful of people in here that were fascinating people that all held a special place in the motorcycle history. Yeah, Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah. The guy who wrote all the Sherlock Holmes stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, Hammond, Hammond was talking about him and how Doyle was like a motorcyclist, right? So. Yeah, for sure. You know, and we have a lot of those people in our own day now, you know, like it would have been cool to see him talk about, like you said, in the, in the American customization world guys like indian larry and stuff like that for you sure know? like oh. those are big names yeah but also there's only so much you know like it does say short in the title <laughs> you know <laughs> there's a lot of big names in that customization world but no it's really cool you know he, he like briefly mentions you know the feel of seeing a celebrity on a motorcycle on how much cooler it makes them look and whatever and like just this idea that there's just this feeling that resonates off of motorcycles you know yeah i think there's a photo in the book of prince william on his sport bike he was riding it it was like it was almost like a throwaway moment in the book where he's like he's riding it or he's leaving a polo match mm. on his motorcycle the night before he marries like kate middleton yeah yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you know what i gotta say one of a pick two actually like two of my favorite motorcycle images and they definitely have a connection. Um, one of them being Indian Larry standing on his bike. Oh, the, the custom uh, bike. Yeah. yeah the with his arms out. Yeah. With, he's just like just this wild looking neck tattoos, crazy hair blowing in the wind, no helmet, you know, ironically enough being why he died later yep. on. And then another one, it's Brad Pitt on an Indian Larry custom bike. And it's like, he's wearing like a, you know, like slim fit jeans and a, I think he's like a yellow Hawaiian type shirt unbuttoned and he's on like a no helmet again, hair blown in the wind, jockey shifter, like just a really cool bike. And you see that guy and you're like, damn, like, God damn, that guy's cool. Like I, every time I see it and I'm like, I, I get that that dude's a celebrity and it's probably like a posed picture or whatever, but he does ride genuinely and it is his bike. Uh, and it's a custom Indian Larry bike, which shows some appreciation, you know, you see it and you're like, man, that looks so goddamn cool. And I think that's a big part of why motorcycles got where they were. Cause you see one and you're like, oh, I want to do that. You know, it's, you know, it's becomes a bit of a trend eventually, but I, you know what I've, I've definitely kind of ragged on that before, like motorcycling, getting cool and whether that kind of wrecks the scene or not but i'm nowadays i'm all for it you know the more people you can get into motorcycles just because you do something cool even in the dirt biking world you go like dirt biking with buddies and somebody just does some gnarly wheelie and you're like man i just want to be that guy 
So what octane rating do you want to give Hammond's book? If you can give it an 87, an 89, a 91, or even a 94 octane, what do you, how do you want to uh, give this an objective rating? You know, I'm going to give it a 91. And this is not necessarily because of my opinion of it, but because I think he went into it making this the book that he wanted it to be. And I think it came out as exactly that because he is a sport bike kind of guy, you know, this, he for sure has a passion for that MotoGP world. And that's the path he wanted to take with it. I think the things that we kind of discussed that it missed is just not so much his world. And so I'm not going to fault him for that. The whole history part, I loved, man. There's so many fun facts in here. There's so many cool things about just characters in the motorcycle world that I even like went out of my way to be like, you know, I'm going to research Beatrice Schillinger, Gottlieb Daimler. Like, how did he get involved? Wait a minute. This dude that has nothing to do with motorcycles put a motor in here. Like, there was so many times that I really like when a book gives me a reason to look further into things. I'm like, I want to know more about this. That's it's pretty cool. You know, grabs your attention enough that you expand your knowledge on it so the history of it i really liked the fun facts about the people and events that happened i'm actually just speaking of fun facts just seeing one of my notes right now that i had no idea um tarmac is short for tarmacadam had no idea till i read this book i was like i'm writing that down it's just one of those cool things you know like just a brief little piece there's just so many cool little bits of information i had a really good time with it and I know that for the right reader, this book would be a 94 for them. Yeah, for sure. I just, it wasn't quite that for me, but I'm not going to call it a bad book because of that. You know, I had, I had a really good time with it. I'd give it a 91. I agree with you, man. It's, it's 91 octane through and through for yeah. sure. The pictures alone. Oh, yes. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, excellent photography. And it's not like that cheesy, you know, when they put like all the pictures in like the center of the book on like the glossy pages. Yeah, yeah. You know, and all the other ones are like the cheap pages. I for sure always go to the center of the book first. Yeah. Well, when they do that, I always go yeah, through all the pictures. You want to go see what it is. And then every once in a while, like I've seen that a lot in like old like Cold War spy books, which I'm a huge sucker for. <laughs> <laughs> like World War II and like uh, Cold War spy books. Love them. And they'll put them in the beginning and then they'll be like, a picture of so-and-so and so-and-so before one of them murdered the other. And you're like, ah, shit. <laughs> I should have read the book first. But I do it every time. Yeah, this one's this one's definitely 91. And I think I was like pleasantly surprised and thoroughly enjoyed like his comedy. He's very entertaining and fun to read. Mm -hmm. And he's got some wacky phrases. And he's even got like some like cliche. And we we already talked about him, right? Like giving it the beans. I'm like, man, I like chuckled aloud. Yeah. That. I'm like, I did that a lot so, in this. So yeah. Fun, so. Motorcycle yabos and give it the beans. <laughs> Dude, keen as mustard. I'm going to find a way to use that. Like, uh, it's great. Just the, the British language, man. It's so good. So before we... Uh, close out this podcast we should probably tell these beautiful people what we're reading next yeah so from here uh we move on to Che Guevara's motorcycle diaries it is a translated copy we're not going to read this in the language it was originally originally written in uh, we are actually going to read it in the original language and then do the entire podcast in that <laughs> language <laughs> this one's I'm of course we'll get into it but uh Che Guevara he's like let's just call him a controversial figure and uh, a good title. yeah, I think uh, I think this is going to be I'm excited because I don't know what to expect, but uh, I'm excited that to sort of turn the pages of Motorcycle Diaries. 
Yeah, I'm going to be reading this book on a beach in Mexico, smoking big cigars. So I'm really going to dive into this. I'm really looking forward to it. You know, it's and this this will be a definitely a different experience from what we just read. Like yeah. Short History of the Motorcycle is a very fun book. It's kind of like fun facts and pub conversation kind of stuff, whereas this is going to be a much more in-depth and adventurous. And I, f I feel less fun in a way, just in a general tone. So see how it goes, but I'm looking forward to it. If you want to contact us, I am enlightened underscore dirtbag on Instagram and on TikTok because apparently I'm 19 now. <laughs> uh, you, I'm Jonah Condro. You can find me just at Jonah Condro uh, on Instagram. <laughs>